Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion. And it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all the malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. My students just finished a week of finals and projects. I could see their anxiety around their studies and their desperate desire to do well. A few students I spoke to said how hard a project was and how long they spent on it. Others were proud that they got a high mark and didn't spend much time on it at all. It's natural to identify ourselves by what we do. One of the first questions we ask when getting to know someone is what do you do for a living? In the same way, as followers of Jesus, we often look for a list of things to accomplish in order to live up to the name Christian. We can turn our scripture reading, prayer, community service, donations, anything really, into a checklist to prove ourselves. Sometimes, when I think I'm doing a good job of following God, I judge people who aren't doing as well as me. But then, I get off track, and it leads to guilt when I fail, shame when I underperform, and fear that people will realize that I'm not that great a Christian. We fall apart when we attempt to live life according to our own strength. We lack a full understanding of the grace we have been shown by God. We miss the impact that grace has on every aspect of our entire lives. Two weeks ago, Pastor Isaac preached that we are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Today, I want to bathe in that grace with you and see that when the spiritual family of God has been filled with grace through Jesus, we get to live lives of grace toward and with one another. We are the spiritual family of God. A definition of grace will help us today. Grace is unmerited favor. Reverend Joseph A. Commonchalk defines grace as generous, free, and totally unexpected and undeserved. It's receiving something good that we do not deserve by any means. An unexpected gift. A portion of an inheritance that you never saw coming. Having a friend bake and deliver muffins just to brighten your day. The letter of Ephesians, written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, deals specifically with the mystery of God's grace. First, Paul shows how God's grace through Jesus brings us into relationship with God himself as his children, thus creating the spiritual family. Then, Paul demonstrates how that same grace is lived out as we relate to one another 
as brothers and sisters in this spiritual family. As God's grace works out in the relationships that we have with each other, Paul considers how we are transformed internally and externally. Throughout Paul's passage, he instructs the spiritual family of God to reflect God's own nature as we engage with one another. Paul reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once lived, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All of us, apart from Jesus, are dead in our sins. We've chosen to reject God, to reject life himself, and we are left with only death. We deserve justice and judgment for our sins against a holy God. And yet God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. From death to life. From separation to belonging. There is new life for the one who trusts Jesus. It is by the grace of God, out of his love for us, that we are saved. No work of our own can redeem us. No achievement or perfect score on a test can prove our worth. But our Father loved us, and our redemption is found in the spotless record of Jesus, who lived, loved, died, and rose from the dead so that we could receive life, true life. It's all on him. When we turn from sin and submit to Jesus, we have put off the old self, which belonged to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires. And we have put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is where today's passage comes in. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Before being brought to life in Jesus, we operated from a distorted view of reality. No concern for God, no submission to him, no recognition of his sovereignty or his love. We lived a lie. We were separated from the truth of life. We were going our own way in falsehood. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. When we come to Jesus and embrace the life that he offers, we discover what it means to truly be alive. We discover truth himself, and our whole world is reoriented. We find our place in God's family. We belong to him and have received brothers and sisters in the faith. This is the first marker of a life of faith, a life of grace. Grace changes how we see our brothers and sisters. As redeemed people, our eyes are opened to the truth, and we now operate in truth toward our spiritual family. We set aside the old way of living, 
a life of protecting ourselves through half-truths, silence, or lies. We've received instead the life of Jesus, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming more like him. This is the process that we call sanctification. Becoming who you already are. As God spoke to Israel, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Paul quotes this prophet Zechariah to further illustrate his point. Zechariah said, These are the things that you shall do. That's the Lord speaking through Zechariah. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. This is the Lord speaking to his people, referring to their conduct amongst themselves. We are members of the same body. And as we learn to live in truth, we learn to trust each other too. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul wrote, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We belong to each other. We're in this together. We can only grow together when we are willing to let others see us the way we really are. I think of the Pure Desire group that seeks to help men be free of sexual sin. This group requires hard, honest vulnerability. Each man must put off any falsehood of trying to seem better than he is so that he can experience real healing and freedom. Same with Freedom Session, a place for people to delve into their past hurts and shames and discover the beauty of God's redemptive work in the midst of his people, the church. Coming on the heels of last week's message about facing dysfunction, R. Kent Hughes writes, Lies, false messages among the members, actually renders the body dysfunctional. When we hide ourselves to look better than we really are, we dismiss the gospel's total transformation in our lives. We can live in truth because we have the assurance of God's love proven through Jesus. So there is nothing to fear. And as the people of God, we get to share that love and throw off our own pride and lies and instead enter into real, humble, deep relationship with each other. One of the consequences of living in lies is the real danger of anger when we find out we've been deceived. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is again a quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 4.4. In that Psalm, King David is advising his enemies not to act rashly on their anger toward him, but to sit and contain their anger. It's critical to understand that Paul is not commanding us don't be angry. Anger itself is not the issue. God gets angry. Jesus flipped tables. It's right to be angry when injustice occurs, when God, people are hurt, when God is mocked. It's what we do in our anger that gets us into hot water. Do we go around telling others what so-and-so did to us? Do we hold someone's past wrongs against them and assume the worst in them? Do we not give people a second chance because they've wronged us? Sometimes cooling off is needed so that we don't sin in the moment of our anger. 
But when we let anger fester and go unchecked, we create a divide between us and a brother or sister in the church. Paul's instruction is to not let anger simmer and stew at length. Instead, we are to deal with it quickly. One writer puts it this way, the day of anger should be the day of reconciliation. If we don't seek reconciliation, if we don't extend grace, we allow Satan to get his claws into our unity and wreak havoc in our testimony to the world. Jesus called the Pharisees children of the devil, but we are children of God. Since God has forgiven our sins and doesn't hold them against us, we get to forgive others their sins against us. And don't forget that you and I also have sins against others that we need to be forgiven. What good does it do to hold a person hostage for their sin? It doesn't bring life. It only causes that relationship to die. Remember, Jesus is life. And we get to be like Jesus by seeking life through understanding and unity instead of allowing anger to divide us. And in the process of reconciliation, we are not ignoring the wrong done to us. Otherwise, there would be no need for reconciliation. Instead, we are admitting that there is a better way through the pain instead of bottling up the anger inside. We show grace because we have been shown grace. This is a hard word, especially in a city like Vancouver, where we are so isolated and especially in the current climate of social isolation. It's easy to let things slide and not deal with the issues that plague us. Sometimes our anger becomes a cold bitterness underneath, not a fiery temper. But is that the way of Christ? Is that what we have learned from Jesus? No. Jesus confronted our rebellion head on, taking it to the cross and dying so that we could become one with him. Really, the trouble of grace is that it requires that we die to ourselves. We don't make ourselves the center of it all anymore. Jesus has become the center. And if we want to be like him, if we want the world to know him, it means letting him live through us. It's only through dying to ourselves, laying ourselves down, that we will experience the fullness of the life God has in store for us. The less we are worried for ourselves, the less we have to be angry about, because we're more concerned with others anyways. A life of grace changes how we see others. Paul then moves from what might be considered internal transformation, from truth and anger, to external transformation. He begins with what seems an alarming instruction to give to a church. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Were there congregants stealing from one another? What could Paul mean by this instruction? In his day, workers hardly got more than they needed for the day ahead of them. Savings accounts were non-existent. If a worker were to become unemployed, they would have to resort to some other means of providing for themselves and their families. Theft occurs 
in all sorts of ways. According to a 2020 study by ComareCamp, global employee theft accounts for 28% of inventory losses. What about constantly leaving early from work? Or doing personal things on company time? What about downplaying your income? My father's an accountant, so I can't really cheat on that one. Paul's command is to stop stealing and to take up hard labor. Work for your provision. Don't rely on handouts if you are capable yourself. And what about those who cannot labor for their needs? Paul addresses that too. He says that those who can work must work, and in so doing, have something to give to those in need. A life of grace changes how we treat our brothers and our sisters. There are acceptable conditions for a person not to work. But let us be eager to live out the gospel in our work, to be providers as our Father in heaven has provided for us. This is only possible when we realize our needs are met and more than exceeded through God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We will be able to take our eyes off of our own needs and instead focus on the needs of others. Philippians 2 verse 4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are like Jesus when we work hard and provide for others. The second external transformation that takes place is how we use our words. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The corrupting words Paul warns against is like rotting meat, which only attracts flies. I remember making ground beef for tacos one night. As soon as the meat hit the frying pan, I realized it had gone bad. The stench of flesh filled the air, windows were opened and fans were set. But the smell lingered too long, and dinner was ruined. We can ruin one another through the words that we use, but God is more concerned with where they come from than the words themselves. Corrupting words don't start in the mouth. They sit and fester. It takes time to bring words out of our lips. Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. God is concerned with the heart that would produce the corruption. The gospel is a heart-transforming message. We cannot stay in the old life if we have been brought into the new life in Jesus. Instead of corrupting talk, Paul instructs us to speak that which builds up. Speak that which gives grace to those who hear. Speak so that when people hear, they hear Jesus in your words. Let grace grace your lips. This does not mean avoiding hard conversations. Jesus didn't shy away from calling people out of their sin. But when he did, he spoke with grace and compassion. As we engage with one another, we likewise must speak the truth and yet do so in grace 
to build up. Our goal is never to win an argument or prove our point. Our goal is to help each other become like Jesus. The next verse links directly to this thought of speaking with grace. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit of God is capable of grief and is grieved when the people of God lie to one another, retain anger toward one another, miss the needs of one another, and speak in all manners that are opposite who God is. We are called to greater life than that. The Spirit continuously points to Jesus and choosing otherwise grieves him. Think about that. God grieves. The Spirit is the assurance that we belong to God. He is grieved when we sin because he is present in our lives. He lives in us. He is always right here. He is the one who unites us to Jesus and to one another. Ephesians 1 says, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let us live in the new life that is ours through Jesus, and bring him glory through our action and through our attitudes. Finally, Paul effectively summarizes his points in a list of vices that are born out of the old life, a life without Christ. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You can see from the progression of one vice to the next. It's worth mentioning that wrath and anger are not bad in themselves, but we know that they are negative in this context because Paul links them together with malice. Malicious attitudes and actions are unbecoming for a believer because Jesus is all that is good and loving and compassionate. So, what's the command? What's the reason and hope we cling to as we seek to put to death our old selves? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here we see again Paul's emphasis. We are able to do these things because we are made to be like the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A life of grace is a reflection of God himself. We have been restored and reconciled to be people of restoration and reconciliation. We've received grace from God, and our lives can now overflow with that grace. Don't forget that in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things on heaven and things on earth. The grace we are called to live out is only found in the grace we've been shown. We're able to engage in this new way to be human specifically because Christ became human. Because Christ lived for us. Because Jesus died for us. Because he rose from the dead. 
because he promised to return one day and finally, finally set all things right. We're waiting for that day now. In the meantime, we get to learn to be the spiritual family of God. We're going to spend forever with one another, so we might as well start now. We get to live lives of grace toward each other, not out of some higher moral obligation or fear that God will be mad at us or disappointed in us if we don't do them. We do it from a place of love for God as he unites us in his family with one another. When the spiritual family of God is filled with grace through Christ, we get to live lives of grace with one another. This is what we celebrate at the communion table. Communion is, by definition, relational. Jesus has removed the hostility between us and God, reuniting us to our Father. And he has brought us together in one spirit to be his body. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, when he had given thanks, he took bread and broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus gave us his body on the cross allowing himself to become sin so that sinful man could become his righteousness. He poured out his blood so that we could have life. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Jesus has covered us in grace. He is our atonement through his death, and the promise of eternity in his life. Communion is for those who submit to and follow Jesus and have received his grace, and therefore are living lives of grace with one another. 
as a spiritual family of believers, as his body unified in the Holy Spirit, we participate together. This is the body of Jesus given for you. Let us eat and do this in remembrance of him. This cup that is poured out for us is the new covenant in his blood. Let us drink in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to take our place in death, to give us his perfect record in life and to rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life through him with you. Father, thank you for sending your spirit to lead us in grace and for binding us to one another in grace. I pray, Lord, that we would not forget the sacrifice that you made on the cross so that we may have true life. Thank you for declaring us righteous and holy I pray that you would lead us in lives of grace toward one another because of the grace that you have shown us. I pray all of this in your most powerful name. Amen.